0: Shalom and welcome to Heretics Standing at Sinai, a podcast for those in or adjacent to the Jewish community who are searching for a place to deepen their spirituality without sacrificing their rationality. I am Rabbi J. Rav, and each week we come together for a conversation about some new ways to exist in the world as an intentional presence ways of making our lives mean something, ways of aligning what we believe with what we experience. Whether you've been exploring Jewish spirituality for years or this is your first time considering it, we're glad you're here. I'm joined this week by my friend Ronnie Lillian, who has been a partner on this road of spirituality for many years now. I don't quite remember where and how we met Ronnie, but I know that one of our first meaningful experiences with was Musar. Um, But I imagine it was somewhat before that, perhaps you'll fill that blank in in just a moment. Uh, But since then, you have become a pillar of this community in every which way you're, you're involved as a participant in many of our programs, you're involved as a leader in many of our programs, you teach uh, spirituality circle, you have been active in running, helping us run our, our meditation retreat. And it just feels like you're part of the almost the professional team you're you're so involved in everything and so to be able to have a conversation with you today about this material which is so close to your soul and we just spoke beforehand about it being close to my soul too in a similar way it's really lovely to have you here and i just want to thank you for being here
1: thank you for having me here
0: uh so let's begin the way i usually do which is to just ask you to fill in a little bit of your your spiritual biography how has your path taken you In whatever detail you want to share, uh, how have you gotten to this moment today?
1: Well, it started when I was a little girl. Uh, My father had some shrapnel in his body still from World War II. And he said he was standing next to a dugout with a group of guys and that he felt as if the hand of God lifted him. And I was a little girl. He had a great big hand. And I could imagine his hand, this hand lifting my father up and putting him down and He had shrapnel in his leg, and other people were killed. And so that was a very powerful image, and it sort of stayed with me for my whole life. And then I started back when I was in college exploring Eastern religions and getting my spirituality from there, and and it's grown ever since.
0: You told me, well, you've shared with me in various ways over the years that you're a non-dualist. You have been. Part of what's happened for you and others is bringing that non-duality into alignment with Judaism. But before we get to that, coming back to the story you just shared, um, the image, especially for a little girl, of God's hand lifting one human being up, moving him away while other human beings perished that is really dualistic that is uh, an external supernatural power which makes decisions about this human and not that human my guess is when you matured and found yourself exploring other forms or expressions of spirituality eastern forms for example did you find any any challenge in reconciling that childhood awe or enigma with what you were finding in in the teachings of the east
1: no um I felt like you know God. Uh, Julie, my father used to say to me, "God knew that I had to live because I was necessary for your mother and for you and your sisters and the family." And I always the image of the hand was really an image of a spirit of a spirituality. All right, it wasn't a literal hand necessarily. Mm-hmm. So. He kind of imbued me with my spirituality, and I never bought the whole dual duality ever. Mm. It kind of separated me from God, and so I was very grateful when I went into the Eastern philosophies, and I came in touch with the ideas that we are all God.
0: Mm. Wow. Where did you and I connect here at Sinai. How did, Do you remember how that happened? What, what was the environment? Was it Musar or was it before that?
1: No, it was before that. Um, Julia said she wanted, when she got out of college, that she wanted to be a member of this temple. And I came here and I met you and we talked and we joined the temple.
0: Hmm. Wow. And then, of course, you met your husband here. I uh, did <laughs> in
1: Musar, which lives with us inside us all the time.
0: Oh, my God. I I think you know, but I'll just say it out loud, how much joy it gives me. Well, this morning, we're going to be opening up the book to talk about an important letter, because I think that a lot of us, as our skill set grows, and as our understanding matures in these spiritual paths, we begin to ask different questions. And this question from this letter effectively is, am I doing it right? And so it's going to be sort of fun to listen to our... um, our fictitious Rabbi Yerachmiel Ben Yisrael, who, again, just for new listeners, is not a historical person. He was created by Rami Shapiro, the author of Open Secrets. And we've made our way through much of the book at this point. Um, and now we're uh, we're opening up the chapter that is called, Is It Working? My dearest Aaron Herschel, so I send off this long letter of instruction and I get back this short query. How do I know if it's working? Oi! I wonder about that sometimes myself. This is what I have discovered. First, let me say that you should not enter into these practices with a goal in mind. They should be done lishma, for their own sake. Why is this so? Because it is the Nishama that sets goals. And the goal it sets for spiritual practice is its own transcendence. This cannot be done. Neshama cannot transcend itself any more than your teeth can bite themselves. Unlike your teeth, though, Nishama can fool itself into thinking it has done so. There's a self-anointed sadik in our village, Reb Tzvi Hirsh HaKohen. He is convinced and goes to great lengths to convince others that he is a great spiritual teacher, a man who has set aside neshama altogether and resides only in the just and compassionate space of Chaya. No, maybe he's right. How can I judge? I'll tell you, I judge his claims by the quality of his actions. Is he kind, just? Merciful and compassionate? Is he more of these than the rest of us? Not only is the second not true, I doubt even the truth of the first. He's so full of himself as to leave no room for the needs of others. This is not a person who has set neshama in the greater compassion of Chaya. This is simply a selfish person masquerading as a selfless one. And sad to say, many fall for his act. So many of us are hungry for an authentic teacher of inward walking that we mistake every charlatan for a saint. Reb Tzvi is loud, energetic, and filled with words that fly by so fast few of his listeners notice that they make no sense. His knowledge is vast, but his wisdom is shallow. Worse still, his actions stem from neshama, not chaya. In my understanding, we know we are truly listening because our lives are more loving. But it's important that we understand what being loving is in this context. We learn this from the 13 attributes of godliness. Moses asks God to show him his face. God says no one can see his face and live. Why? Because God's face includes your face and the faces of all things. Just as your pointer finger cannot point to itself or your ears hear themselves or your nose smell itself. You cannot see God's face. Yet God says he will shield Moses in a cleft of a rock and pass by, allowing Moses to experience what we might call the wake of God. You might not see a ship passing, but you can see the impact of its presence on the water. What is God's wake? What is the impact of God's presence? The 13 attributes that Moses hears as God passes by. The first three of these are ineffable. Torah simply lists them as the one who is all, the one who is all God. But the remaining nine are understandable. Compassionate, graceful, patient, abundantly kind, abundantly honest, preserving of kindness, forgiving iniquity, forgiving willfulness, forgiving error, cleanser of stains and grudges. When you listen to the unity of God as all in all, you engage the world with love. Engaging the world with love means that you live these attributes of God. You are compassionate, graceful, patient, kind, and truthful. You remember the good that people do. You forgive their mistakes over and over again, and you do not hold their past against them. If you wish to know if you're walking inwardly, if you wish to know if you are truly listening to the one who is all, look to the quality of your actions. Are you becoming more compassionate, patient, kind, and the rest? If so, then you are listening and loving. If not, then you're not the process of inquiry after these attributes is called cheshbon hanefesh an accounting of the soul each evening before going to sleep ask yourself for example just how compassionate am i review situations during the day when you acted with compassion and times when you did not can you see why you were compassionate in one instance and not in another, pay attention and become aware when compassion is present or when it should be called upon. Work honestly with yourself to identify compassion and when to use it. You will know when you are doing it right because you will sense a bond, a union between you and the person you're engaging. This is Tikkun the repairing of your seemingly separate self in the greater unity of God. When you feel you've taken compassion as far as you can, take up grace. And then each attribute in turn until you feel you have studied them all. And when you've done them all, start again. There is no end to consciously cultivating the attributes of God. I imagine you reading this at night, so now go to sleep, and before you do, ask yourself a few questions. shalom. Oh, it's such a good one. It is. What does it bring up for you? What are your first thoughts?
1: My first thoughts is that it gives you a roadmap mm-hmm. on how to be a good person. Um. Uh. It tells you, you know, exactly what you have to do to be compassionate, to have grace, to be kind toward others. And um, tells you how to be in the world, how to be a mensch. Mm-hmm.
0: Remind you of anything else you spent a great deal of time practicing in Judaism?
1: Actually, we are going to use in Musar, which I do spend a lot of time practicing Taking the attributes of God and going through them mm. this year.
0: I didn't know that was the plan for this year. It was but...
1: determined yesterday. <laughs> oh, <laughs>
0: well, then fresh off or hot off the presses, that was exactly what I was thinking about how much his suggestions mirror what we've read together from Alan Marinus in, uh, in Everyday Holiness, mm-hmm. uh, the practice of watching your actions all day. And at the end of the day, doing a little review. Morena suggests using a journal and going through, noting where you've had successes, where you missed your mark, and using that to make the next day a little bit more accurate.
1: Yes, he does. And I'm very fortunate in that I practice Musar with my partner. And so we catch each other if we don't catch ourselves when we deviate from a our path. Mm. And so, um, you have to live, or I have to live, I think, in a space of humility. Humility being knowing just your right space in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Not putting too much out, and not reneging on your responsibilities to be present when it is called for. Mm. And knowing what the correct kind of presence is needed, which usually involves being still and listening.
0: I'm thinking about how lucky you and your partner are that you've cultivated, using Musar as a a curriculum and a shared language, you've cultivated an ability to engage in what Judaism calls tochacha, which is rebuke. And there's a lot of material out there about how rebuke is to be offered because the, um, the Torah says really clearly, et re'acha. you have to rebuke, you shall surely rebuke your neighbor, your friend, your partner. Uh, but the rabbis understood that pointing out somebody else's missteps is really hard, really risky, and should only be done when you trust that the other person can hear it as it's intended and use it. And so I was just listening to you talk about how the two of you can point out to each other when you missed the mark. That's really precious. Usually, most of us, I think, have to do that solo. We have to go back over our own actions. And that's harder sometimes to see. Uh, I hope you appreciate how cool that is that the two of you can do that for each other.
1: I do. And I don't know when, but at some point I realized that I can take criticism as a helpful comment, not as the way people think the word of criticism, as you criticize me, you know. Mm -hmm. um, Depending upon who's offering it to me, because there are people that I believe have my best interests at heart. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm not acting in a way that might be my best self, if those people let me know that, Mm -hmm. then I feel like it's a call to get back to my best self. And that's helpful and kind.
0: Can you think of an example where you had to go through a quick process of reminding yourself that somebody who had your best interest, you trust that, but they offered you some reflection, some critique uh we add the word constructive right before criticism yeah. some constructive criticism that you had to work through in order to see its value
1: um. There's a person in my life who will do that. And sometimes that person will say it in a harsh tone of voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet I am able to take a step back and hear them mm-hmm. because of who they are. And I know that they're not saying that to hurt me.
0: Are you able to do that real time? Yes. Wow. And have you always been able to do that with this person? Or no. did it take some practice?
1: No, takes practice. It takes practice. Wow. It takes practice. I find I have to be in a place where I have put down my defenses and said to myself, I am going to listen and take in what this person says and go beyond the tone of what the person is saying. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you were talking about how with this this one individual, you you have to lower defenses, go... Go at it with um, without being primed for attack, and that's hard because number one, especially if this individual has given you previous example, it takes practice to train down those those walls. But then often, if you know that it's going to be a crucial conversation, you know that you're going to be engaging in something which is going to be difficult. You can. Prime yourself. You can prep yourself, um, but so often these these comments come when we're not prepared, and the the instinctual or reflexive reaction is um, to put up our spiritual fists and you know and either punch back or block ourselves from from attack. And I love marinus's models who talked about plucking out a hair before it becomes a mountain. You know, when it's a hair, it's easy to go pink, You know, I pluck it out of your arm or whatever. Once it grows into something unmanageable, it's much more difficult. Marinus talked about the fuse, and once it's lit, it's gonna burn right up to the the bomb and explode. But the match that lights the fuse has to touch the fuse. And if you can train yourself to just move the match away from the fuse a little bit, so that you're not as, you're not walking through life as primed to explode, That would be a successful outcome of a Musar practice or a spiritual practice.
1: Yes. And there's a sentence I heard, and it was, the power is in the pause. Mm -hmm. And so I breathe. If someone says something I don't like, I have trained myself to take the pause, Mm -hmm. to take some deep breaths, and not to be reactive rather than to think things before through before they come out of my mouth, including, I can't respond to that right now. I'm angry. I need a few minutes to process this.
0: All right, I'm going to ask you to try and do something which you've probably done for yourself, but I'm going to ask you to try and think it out loud. In order to achieve what you just described, to get to the point of, of the reaction that you desire to the other person, A whole series of processes has to take place internally very rapidly. And I wonder if you can pull them apart and describe what has to happen in a situation where something happens that triggers you. What are the steps that go on internally for you to get you to a place to take the breath that can get you to a place of the response that you're proud of?
1: First thing I notice is that I'm not breathing. Mm -hmm. Second thing I notice is that the muscles in my body are getting tight. Mm -hmm. And so the minute I notice those two things, that my body automatically, because I've trained it, goes into the relax mode. I've trained myself. Mm -hmm. When I'm breathing is shallow, something in me says, take a deep breath, Mm -hmm. relax your muscles, and those two things go together and then my mind becomes calmer. Hmm. It's very volitional. You have to practice this, I have to practice
0: Articulate for listeners what they might want to be watching for, just as a personal growth practice, to pay attention through the course of their day to watch really carefully what's happening internally. That's what I took most from Musar, was just being self-aware, seeing what's happening not always able to control it, Not certainly not that first time, but at the end of the day, looking back and saying, ah, there's a great example, and little by little you train the amount of time between trigger control and response, you train that window to become shorter and shorter uh, rather than saying, oh, I wish I had uh, you can begin to say here's what I need to do and and do it almost real time
1: And, in fact, when I know I'm going to be in the presence of someone who might trigger me, I do the deep breathing before Mm -hmm. I am in their presence. And then I do the deep breathing when I leave their presence Mm -hmm. because I don't want to damage myself with negative ideas.
0: Oh, that's so beautiful. Hmm. I don't know if everybody... uh, Recognized what Rami Shapiro was was talking about in this chapter. He kept referring to the 13 attributes of God Um, And it's a it's a piece of text that comes out of the Torah and we will be repeating it most uh, Coming up next month at Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and you'll hear the cantor repeat this over and over again Uh, The Hebrew is beautiful as Adonai Adonai El-Rachum V'chanun. Anyway, it's this beautiful repetitive reminder that on this day of reflection, this is what you need to shoot for. And I just, I really love that.
1: And I think Musar teaches us how to strive for that. It says, work on this this month. For a whole month, work on this and see what happens, you know. Right. And, um, and I think that it's good to have a plan. You can't just say to yourself, I'm going to be a better person and be a better person. You have to have a plan.
0: Right. Right. And uh, and the curriculum, we just heard it here articulated a little differently, but not much. He says when you feel like you've made a good piece of progress on one, move to the next of God's 13 attributes. Uh, In Musar, it's a little bit more structured, uh, either a week at a time or a month at a time. You you work through it every day and then you move on to the next one. And I really appreciate that, too. It's very achievable. It's not as big as saying just be a better person. That's that's unrealistic. Yes, it
1: Um, is. You have to have a roadmap. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I like about Massar is that the attributes in Massar, the traits that we work on, are never independent. Right. So if I'm practicing humility with a person who's talking to me, chances are I'm also practicing um, listening to them, compassion, mm-hmm. grace. Providing myself as an mm-hmm. open vessel, mm-hmm. you know, and so that takes a lot of different attributes, and you never practice just one, really.
0: Mm. Oh, I hope that all of our Musarnikim out there heard you say that. That was really well stated. Yeah. Hmm. There's also this little piece of me that, that for a moment there, loved the character Reb Yerachmiel, the writer. Even a little bit more, because he—he's clearly a teacher. He is demonstrating for his fictional student, uh, Haron, and for all of us the path. He's—he's he's guiding us. And then in this chapter, he talks about this this Braggart, this this guy, and he's clearly judgmental. He's clearly annoyed by by him, and oh, he's anything but a saint. And I just—I loved this little bit of humanity, a little bit of you know room still to grow as long as i'm judging him i'm still not at the highest level of my own transcendence and it made Reb rahmiel more real mm-hmm. to me
1: because we all judge people because that's part of being human mm-hmm. it's what we do with it, yeah, it is. <laughs> that's either helpful or not helpful
0: right. it, i think it's part of the the earliest amygdala response our lizard brain of judging situations in quite black or white ways uh is this a good situation or a dangerous situation? Is that a friend or a foe? Um, is this divine or is this evil? And it really helps us to be able to bifurcate the world into those poles. But of course, as as we've evolved, we've learned that there is absolutely well, nothing in the world, I think, that is pure anything. Uh, it, it's all on a, on a spectrum, on a continuum.
1: I still have trouble, though, with I was thinking about this on the way over with people like Hitler, you know, uh, a friend of mine who's a Buddhist says, you are the pirate that rapes the child. You are the Hitler that kills the Jews. You are. And and I and I and I think about Wait,
0: I want to just make sure everyone understands what you mean. Okay. Uh, that teacher is reminding you that elements of those worst humans exist in each of us. Is that what they're saying? Well, you are the she Hitler. She was meaning. just
1: saying it very bluntly, like that, mm-hmm. you know. And and what you just said clarifies what she said because I was like, no, I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm not that Hitler. I'm not that pirate. I'm not. I'm not. You mm-hmm. know. And so, I think you just clarified it for oh. me. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. pieces that that the Yitzer Tov exists and the Yitzer Hara exists in all of us and. I guess it depends on what we choose to do with that. Yeah.
0: On Friday night at services, I talked for a few moments about um, the fact that the, the the synagogue shooter in Pittsburgh was just sentenced this week to the death penalty. And I explained why I am opposed to the death penalty and why the reform movement has been opposed to the death penalty for decades. Uh, and there's lots of ways to, to explain that But what I arrived at for us was that, for me, when you place yourself in the position of taking away the divinity in someone else, you have allowed them to separate yourself from God. If you and I look around the world and we try to see God in everything and in everyone, we're made in the divine image, that means that I am looking at a human who, through his actions, has completely erased the image of God in himself for me. I can't see it anymore. And so I want to destroy it with the death penalty. And that yields an incredible wound to my soul. So I'm opposed to the death penalty because of what it forces upon me as a member of society that upholds the death penalty. The hunger for vengeance is alive and well in me I want that man to suffer as long as possible. But I still see the divine in there. I still wonder what sorts of trauma has he gone through? What sorts of sick, ugly teaching has he been subject to that taught him that Jews are the source of his problems and need to be killed? You know, he he is a wound, in a way... Hold on to your seats folks some will consider this heresy but this is heretics standing at sinai so i guess i can do it in a way he's a victim as well and that that can be really hard for folks to to make their way to if you're if you're listening to the conversation today i would love your thoughts maybe you'll email me and ronnie and share what you think about this piece of the conversation the ability to number one see the worst of hitler or a pirate in ourselves as that piece of our ugliness that we succeed in holding at bay most of the time and what do you think of the idea that um, that the capital punishment comes with a cost for us as individuals in society that it it robs us of our ability to claim non-duality
1: well there are two things I want to say one is gonna sound like it's not non-dualism but it, it, it fits in there is that there are some people like that who have for whatever reason in their lives dropped a, a curtain that doesn't allow light in mm-hmm. or it's been dropped for them mm-hmm. and so they are not in touch with humanity of all people all right and the other thing is that um we definitely didn't want to put him in jail because then he would find the brotherhood and the clan and he would be made into a hero Mm -hmm. however were he to have been sent to isolation for the rest of his life Mm -hmm. then we wouldn't have given up our humanity Mm -hmm. and we'd have stripped him of his because our humanity is expressed in our relationships with others
0: beautiful i agree completely There are people who need to be separated from and removed completely, permanently from society because of the danger they pose to others. So everything you said, I agree with wholeheartedly. Hmm. The last little observation I'll make about the chapter is one that I was reminded of. There's a psychologist who like others have studied the developmental growth of humans, but this guy from a, from a spirituality point of view. His name is Fowler. Fowler looks at these stages, you know, that we start at as an infant, uh, where we see um, we see, well, as a non-dualist, God ever, We're not aware of ourselves. We're just a little baby looking up into the eyes of our of our deity-like parent. And when we cry, we get what we need, hopefully. Uh, you know, we're we're fed when we're wet. We cry and we're changed. Um, When we wake what we need is right there and when a baby doesn't get that of course it impacts their entire trajectory of life and then as we mature through childhood, and we begin to differentiate ourselves from the world. Uh, we look at our hands, and we realize, oh, look at that thing moving in front of me. Uh, you know, and, and there's something going on there where we have impact on the world. We start to understand duality. We move through the phases, and he creates six stages. The sixth is called universalizing faith. And it would be akin to what Reb um, Yerachmiel what is calling transcending ourselves, losing the sense of our differentiation it is non-duality and Fowler suggests that very few people actually achieve that stage and he says if you're asking yourself have I made it you have not and it's exactly what uh what Rabbi Yurachmiel said in this chapter uh you know if you have to ask the question no you're not there yet because you're still dealing with your sense of self um, you know, maybe the Dalai Lama has made it. I don't know. I don't know him. Uh, but we like to, we like to have the idea that it's possible. And so we create gurus or teachers or spiritual models after whom we can follow and grow because we believe that they're further along the process than we are and that it's possible. So I'll, uh, I'll put a link to some of Fowler's work in the episode materials.
1: Oh, good, because I would like to read that chapter. That sounds very interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. You and Ellen are doing your uh, your meditation circle again this year?
1: Yes, we are.
0: Would you care to offer a quick little commercial to anyone listening who might want to sign up for your circle this coming month?
1: Sure. If you're going to learn how to quiet your mind and calm down the monkeys that jump up and down in your head all day long, then come to our meditation circle It's not for people who find it easy, although they're welcome, to sit still and be quiet. It's for people who would like to learn different modalities of finding peace within themselves. So come join us.
0: There'll be a, a circle fair coming up Sunday, September 10th. Will be the first chance for you to sign up for Ronnie and Ellen's meditation circle and the other, gosh, I think we've got 25 circles this year. So hopefully, folks will. We'll take advantage of that opportunity oh ronnie this was as good a conversation as i hoped it would be i shared with you that i was just looking forward to sitting with a friend a teacher of mine who i love having right next to me because i feel like i feed off you as much as you say you get from me Uh, and so thank you very much for being here today
1: oh thank you for letting me share this experience with you
0: (laughs) For those listening, if you had any trouble hearing what Ronnie and I were saying, you can click below for a transcript of today's conversation, or if you just want to go back and review some some of the conversation, and I'll also put in some links for some of the materials that we mentioned. This coming month, we are headed towards the month of Elul. There'll be no episode next Friday because I'm prepping the month of Elul episodes. Those are designed to help provide us with ways to enter Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as those who resonate with non-duality so that when we're sitting in our our spiritual moments of the holidays we can pull on some of these uh, these ways of thinking and maybe find new understandings in traditional modes so for those listening stay tuned in the coming month we're going to have some uh some different format to the to the podcast and then we'll look forward to seeing you then If you enjoyed this and you want to be notified of new episodes as they drop, you can click on the subscribe button. And then, of course, if there's someone you know in your life who's also thinking this way or should be thinking this way, share it with them. Invite them to the conversation. Maybe listen to an episode together over a cup of coffee and then talk about it yourselves. So until next time, all of you heretics out there, stand proud.